Black Tech Green Money isn't just about telling the stories of successful black entrepreneurs. It's also about giving actionable and wealth building strategies that help you protect the future of our communities. That's why we're pleased to be supported by State Farm Insurance. State Farm also believes that we must invest in our communities to achieve economic growth by sponsoring programs like the AXO, which rewards high school students for their academic achievements. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Celebrate your magic in the middle of life's messes. Hot, happy mess. I'm Zuri Hall, and this is Hot, Hot Happy Mess. Oh, shoot. What's up? Happy Monday. I am so excited that you are here today. I am your host, Zuri Hall, and this is Hot Happy Mess. Today is gonna be the sexiest smorgasbord. Y'all know I still don't know how to pronounce that word. All about personal finance. As you know, this is the career and finance series. And before we deep dive into the credit and investing in crypto and all that jazz, we kind of wanted to back it up. I just want to start from the 101 of it all, okay? The beginner's POV. But most importantly, we're just approaching personal finance through a lens of empathy and Instead of shame, because there's so much shame around money, around the lack thereof, around having or showing too much, about knowing how to save or knowing how to invest. It's just, there's so much shame around it. And I think we should shake that off. I have certainly um, been on the receiving end of that shame. I've dealt with the shame of, you know, whether it's financial issues or credit issues, particularly in my early years before I got my whole life together. And that's why I'm so passionate about this stuff because it's so important. And I'm just excited to share the love and focus on sharing tangible steps and words of encouragement and just really helping give you the tools for best life minus the burnout, okay? Now, before we talk to our amazing expert, I wanna share with y'all an iTunes review that made me all warm and fuzzy inside. Texas Gal 94 said, hot happy mess is black girl magic. Ziri is the real deal. This podcast is such a breath of fresh air. It keeps me uplifted, inspired, and determined to live my best life in a way that's not toxic. Thank you for creating this. No, thank you, Texas Gal, so much for taking the 
time to leave a review. It is so appreciated. And, you know, like I've told you before, y'all, they really help, you know. So just a reminder, if you can leave a review on iTunes, it's free and it's an easy way to support the Hot Happy Mess podcast so that we can keep giving y'all the goods. It really shows that people are vibing with the show and it helps us grow. It helps Hot Happy Mess grow. Okay. So if you want to leave a review, go to Apple Podcasts, type in Hot Happy Mess, scroll down, write the review, leave five stars. Thanks. Love you. Okay. So like I was telling you, um, just a little bit, personal finance, financial literacy is something that is really important to me. You know, I actually gave the keynote speech at the 2018 NAACP uh, Freedom Fund in my hometown back in Toledo. And my topic was personal economic empowerment and how important that is. So before we dive into our expert, I just want to share a little bit about my journey to personal economic empowerment and why it's so important to me. Throughout this series, we're going to dig into credit savings, investing, spotlight some incredible real women and their stories and get a ton of expert advice. Um, but just to share a little bit of my story, and this is, you know, some of what I spoke about in my speech, um, a few years ago, but I am all about autonomy about, and I mean that in a sense of not like living on my own Island and just being alone and not engaging with anyone, even though I do have my days. Um, but being able to rely on myself to be self-sufficient and so much of that um, comes from economic empowerment too and financial empowerment. I was trying to be, you know, autonomous as soon as I could walk and talk. I stayed plotting my escapes. My mom even told me I tried to break out of a preschool window on my first day. I didn't want to be there. Um, but growing up, you, you sometimes feel caged, right? You go to school. My teacher won't let me do this. My principal won't let me do that. You get a job. Now my boss won't let me do this. My salary won't allow me to do that. And it goes on and on and on. And growing up, sometimes you feel caged and stifled. And then it's my mom won't let me do this. My dad said I can't wear that. Next it's school. My teacher, my blah, 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 blah. And eventually I'm thinking to myself, I'm not gonna be able to do anything except say black and die. But in all seriousness, I really wanted to be free to live my life on my terms. And it's only now as I look back that I realize that, you know, my awesome education in Ohio, the really tough economic lessons that I learned in my early 20s um, and understanding the power that I had if I lived my life with intention, like those are the life lessons um, that really set the foundation for the economic freedom and, and the other freedoms that I enjoy now. Two of my biggest inspirations are my parents and they always did teach me the importance of hard work. Um, and that was a way to make money, right? So I've been trying to make this cash since I could legally make a dollar. I've been working since I was 15 and a half. As soon as I could apply for my, uh, what is it? The, the first job, the temp job, whatever it is, like the part-time stuff, I did. My first job ever was a holiday job at Hickory Farms call center. I was slanging beef sticks, y'all, selling meat and cheese. I know it sounds bad, but I won the title of number one upseller because I was so good at convincing callers to add products onto their orders. Would you like fries with um, So if you ever need me to hook you up with a flight of cheese balls, I got you, whether you want them or not. Number one upseller, let's go. So I worked at the Buckle, at the mall selling jeans, but then I had to quit because I hated having to walk up to people and ask if they needed help. I was so shy, I would literally hide inside the fitting room 
and hope that the customers would leave so I didn't have to talk to them. I've clearly gotten over that. And then for a while in high school, I was the watch repair person at JCPenney's, bro. Literally repairing watches at JCPenney's. And if you're thinking who brings their watch to JCPenney's to be repaired, the answer is no one. I would spend my shifts sitting in the corner reading and napping when no one was looking, which was pretty much all the time. So you would think that all of this work experience and education and drive would have made me just automatically smart with a dollar, right? wrong. I was smart enough to graduate from a top university on a full academic scholarship. But when it came to financial literacy, I didn't even know my one, two, threes. We all know that economic opportunities are often hindered by, you know, systemic inequalities. And sometimes it's just being young and financially stupid. And oftentimes it's due to not having the appropriate resources available. Um, I'll give one example for me, even though, like I told you, I was on a full academic scholarship at Ohio State, which means my bills were paid. Um, I still took out a small loan. It was a loan that I didn't even need because of the full ride. But you're a freshman in college, you're on campus, you're living on your own for the first time. Heck yeah, I want a few bucks in my pocket so I can buy things I don't need or things I do need, like a party dress the size of a dish towel from Forever 21, the back to school icebreaker and occasional meals at the Cheesecake Factory. They were all very important. Now, when I got the bill, I knew enough to pay it, but I only paid the minimum due and I continued to spend on things that I didn't need. So by the time I graduated, I had a very unnecessary chunk of debt that haunted me, that it continued to grow with interest and, and haunt me for years. And it's hard enough when you're starting out entry level in the real world, particularly if you're a millennial who came out post-graduation and none of the jobs we were promised were waiting for us for the most part. You know, you're working all the time for little to no money. For every bill you pay, there's another two that pop up. I started falling behind with my bills, which was really bad. And then I stuck my head in the sand, which was worse. I would see creditors calling and hit decline, decline, decline. I genuinely did not understand how negatively that would affect my credit score and my ability to navigate economically until it was too late. By the time I moved to Dallas, where I was, you know, beginning to anchor the evening news, I was hit hard. I'm talking super high interest rates, um, even on pre-owned cars, anxiety whenever people would run my credit checks while I waited with bated breath to see if my score made the cut, even making all the money I was suddenly making in my mid-20s because I was making good money. By the time I was in Dallas, we're talking six figures. I realized in that moment that it didn't matter. Cash is one thing, credit is another thing entirely, okay? So I began working obsessively to get it back on track and I'm gonna talk more about that in a future episode where we're gonna dive into the nitty gritty of your credit and how to fix it if you've got bad credit, how to have the report card, quote unquote, of a rock star um, so that you can get the homes and the cars and the, the, the education and whatever else it is that you want, um, but I started figuring it out, you know, it was a crash course. It wasn't a thing that I'd been very educated on. No one had really taught me how to handle my credit. Um, but I will never forget the day that I eliminated all of my credit card debt for the first time since I started racking it up and the feeling of walking into a condo or onto a car lot or into a store and saying with confidence, I will take it. It felt like freedom. It was freedom. 
talk about feeling empowered, you know? Um, so thank God I came out on the other side of that stronger, wiser, and with a much sexier credit score, I must say. But I learned a very hard lesson, and that is that you cannot run from your problems, whether they're financial or otherwise. You just got to tackle them head on, even if it feels insurmountable when you're not making much money. And oftentimes it's not a lack of work ethic or will or stupidity. It's just a lack of education and it's a lack of resources. So again, that's why I'm so excited to share and present this series with you so that we can just get it together because the sooner we get it together, the sooner we can reap the benefits of that. So now that you've had a little spiel, a little insight into my 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 financial journey and how I kind of got to where I am now, um, it's time to bring in the big dogs. It's time to bring in the expert, um, the amazing Stephanie O'Connell, who is going to break down credit, debt, budgeting, and answer a couple of your questions, some listener questions. And you definitely don't want to miss her breakdown on financial compatibility. It is pure gold. Here's Stephanie. All right. Stephanie O'Connell Rodriguez is a writer covering women, money, power, and ambition. She's the host of Real Simple Magazine's Money Confidential podcast, the founder of Statement Cards, a line of greeting cards that celebrates milestones beyond marriage and motherhood, sign me up, and the co-founder of Statement Event, which is dedicated to connecting the dots between gender equity and financial power. Stephanie, girl, when do you sleep? Uh, that is a good question, but I could ask the same of you, Touché. to be honest. Touche. I'm so excited <laughs> to have you on the show today because uh, career and finance are two topics very near and dear to my heart. For me, um, financial literacy was a steep learning curve, and a lot of it I had to just mm-hmm. learn on my own in the real world because, to be quite frank, I don't think anybody prepared me for it. I don't think school really prepared yeah. me as much as I love my family they didn't particularly prepare me, but that's because they'd had certain ideas that were passed down from generation to generation. Um, why is this the industry that you felt was for you? Why are you so passionate about empowering women when it comes to financial literacy? Well, like a lot of people who are really into money, <laughs> my interest in money came from a personal pain point, mm-hmm. mainly that like I didn't make nearly enough of it. And once I had some of it, I didn't know how to maximize it, make it work for me. I think the biggest thing was, you know, I was in my early twenties and I had some medical bills and I remember thinking like, Oh my goodness. (laughs) Like you could not have prepared me for how much healthcare costs. Um, and when I got hit with my first medical bills in my early twenties and I am a relatively healthy person even to this Uh day, but I just remember thinking, wow, like there is no like conception of how much basic like life maintenance, like your the cost of maintaining your teeth, mm-hmm. the cost of blood tests, yeah. the cost of basic things, like didn't even factor into my calculation of like, okay, yes, I know my rent. I know my utilities. I know my everything else, but just like the other basics of how expensive life mm-hmm. is and thus how much I wound up feeling like I was at the mercy of my money mm-hmm. or my lack thereof mm-hmm. because of how how outsized those costs were compared to my income. Like that was, that was my pain yeah. point. And that was really also my, my moment of engagement yeah. to say, oh, I don't want to feel at the mercy of my money. I want to feel empowered by my right. money. I want to feel like my money works for right. me. So let me learn more about this because 
this is not going to work for me if it feels like this for the rest of my right. life. Right. I so respect that you were able to call that quickly and very early on in your life <laughs> and then pivot. Look, you're talking about health. I could barely pay my electric bill in my early 20s. I mm-hmm. cannot imagine if I had a serious health bill and yet these things happen and we're not necessarily equipped. And then that's when you end up with the pie on your face. So you realized, okay, I got to do something differently. This isn't working for me. What happened? What did you do? How did you start that journey? So the first thing I did is the thing I do to this day. And it sounds so, so simple that it's just like one of those things that sounds so simple that it couldn't be life changing because it's too simple. Mm-hmm. But when you actually do it, Change it is life changing. And that is tracking every single dollar I spend and every single dollar I earn. And I think why that is so game changing is a lot of us are walking around with what we think we spend, with what we think we earn, with what we, where we think we're at. But what tracking your money does is it really forces you to confront where you are with your money at any given moment in time. So if you end every day or start every day by checking all of your bank accounts and seeing what's coming in, what's coming out, your awareness of where you are financially is automatically correct. Mm -hmm. It is on track. It is not an assumption. It can't be off base because you are looking at cold, hard numbers. And that knowledge influences your behavior. And of course, that knowledge cannot solve for an enormous medical bill that you literally don't have the money to cover. Like we have to also take into account that life is much, much more expensive than it was when our parents were growing up. And doing just the math itself is very, very difficult given the high costs and low incomes that most people are dealing with. But that said, knowing your numbers is one thing absolutely everyone can do no matter where you are. And for me, it felt like a sense of control. Mm. Even if the numbers didn't add up, just knowing what they Mm. were. That made me feel like I had some semblance of control, even when I was working freelance and didn't know how much money I was going to make next Mm -hmm. month, or even when those unexpected bills came in. Because things, yes, there's a lot of stuff we don't know, but can I start with what I do know? And tracking your money is something we can always do and always know. And are there any tips that you have for how to track? Like, do you, do you recommend the apps? Do you recommend just writing it down old school pen and paper? I'll admit I am so bad about that. And my boyfriend is so good about like to the point he is anal about it. Like he has Excel sheets and he is like, wait, how much was that extra um, cheese? $1.25? Okay, let me put it in the Excel list. And I'm just like, oh my God. And then he'll be like, well, how much money did you make this month? And I'm like, I mean, about this much. And he's like, well, how much specific, like, did you? And I'm like, that's a great question. Let me circle back around in two days once I figure out what the answer is. So I've had to get better about that because it is, you think you're making more money than you, you're making. You think you're mm. taking home more than you're taking home. You think you always think you're spending less on Amazon than you're actually spending on Amazon. How should we be tracking this in a way that also is reasonable with our busy lives? 
Yeah. So I think this is advice that I give to almost every financial circumstance, which is you have to do it in a way that works for you. Because what I think is really wrong about a lot of personal finance and the reason a lot of people struggle with it is that it is very dogmatic and it's very prescriptive and it's very one size fits all. Mm -hmm. You must do this or that. You know, if you're not saving 10%, you're an idiot. Mm -hmm. I think that I hate that kind of advice Mm, because it does not account for the nuance and flexibility that a lot of us are just like the reality of our lives, right? Because I can have a month where I make 10 times as much as I usually do. And then I can have two months where I make $0. So for me, I need to tailor my financial strategies to the realities of my life. And each of us needs to be doing that, right? If you have $100,000 in student loan debt, don't let anybody tell you that it is a it is foolish for you not to be investing 20% of your paycheck because that student loan debt is a big burden. And if you need to adjust your financial strategy so that you can accommodate that obligation in your life, you should. So I feel the same way with tracking my money, right? It's like, okay, yeah, I'm a big spreadsheet person too. I'm like your boyfriend. (laughs) I like, I put my parking meters on my spreadsheet, right? (laughs) I'm not even kidding you. And it's not that I, at this point in my life, like, yes, I have enough money that, that 25 cents is not going to make a difference, but I didn't start. No, I love it. It's the principle. Um, It's what, it's that discipline that got you here. Exactly. And also it's a practice of mindfulness and more than anything, it's a practice, right? It keeps money at the top of my mind. At the end of the day, when I go back home and I put everything on the spreadsheet from what I spent from the day, that is me checking in with myself about where I'm at, how I'm feeling. Am I on track? Am I not on track? So more than the money, it's about the, the money practice. And so for me, it's a spreadsheet, but what I tell people is like, experiment. And please do not be discouraged if a spreadsheet doesn't work for you. If a pen and paper works for you, if a journal works for you, if um, an app works for you. Do you you, have any recommend any apps? Use that. I mean, I'm not so much of an app person. I know Mint is a classic. Mm -hmm. One one, uh, software I use is called Personal Capital. Is that it not only tracks your budget, which is like your cash flow in and your cash flow out, right? But it also tracks your net worth. And I think mm. net worth is like the ultimate measure of your financial health. And it's not necessarily the thing we typically talk about or think about when we're talking about our financial health. Yeah. And so I just want to make that distinction between budget and net worth. Net worth is everything you own financially speaking, minus everything you owe financially so speaking. we're talking assets minus liabilities. Correct. And I, <laughs> I you're using the fancy language. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and, uh, but for, for simplistic, simplistic. Sure, sure. Yeah. Own minus owe. And just as an example, you know, I think I just saw you bought a house, right? I did. Yes. Well, first of all, huge congratulations. <laughs> um, but that that's an asset. But your mortgage yeah. would be a liability, right? So right. that's what you still owe on the house, right? So yep. so anything that's an asset. So for for folks who might not know, they might immediately think, okay, I know I know my house is an asset. I know my car if I own it outright, that's an asset. What else could be an asset? Well, I mean, it's it's your checking account balance. It's your savings account balance. It's your investment account balances, right? So it's all of that. Jewelry, expensive jewelry. If you have jewelry that's worth something, <laughs> that's- 
I don't, by the way, because I would lose it. Right? Or, or people who have these uh, NFTs now. Oh, gosh. Don't get me started on the NFTs. I'm still wrapping my mind around it. So am I, right? Like, I, I write about money full time, and I do not yeah. even have, like, the brain power to conceptualize yeah. the value of an NFT. So for, for the purposes of this conversation and for 99.99% of people, like, let's stick with the basic yeah. categories. Yeah. Like, it, we're probably not collecting fine art, right? No. We probably just have, like, okay, if I have a good investment account, that's a win. And exactly. on the other side of that is the liabilities, right? It's the student loan balance. It's the mortgage balance. It's uh, the car loan. You know, it's, it's thing, people we owe money to, credit card companies, et cetera. And mm-hmm. that, that's the real measure of our mm-hmm. financial health because more than just money in and out on a monthly, month-to-month basis, that takes a look at our full financial picture. Like, mm-hmm. what do I actually own? And so for me, tracking not just the budget, but also the value of my assets mm-hmm. minus the, the total sum of my liabilities, that tells mm-hmm. me, okay, how much am I really on track for where I want to be? State Farm Insurance gets it. Representation alone doesn't equate to authenticity. State Farm understands and wants to help protect our communities by investing in our future, building off the hard work our parents have done before us. We all are looking to create generational wealth so that our families and generations behind us have a better starting point than we did. That begins with financial literacy. State Farm helps fund programs like Project Ready, a National Urban League program committed to the educational achievement of black and brown youth. To date, participants have been awarded over $11 million in scholarships offers as a direct result of contributions from State Farm. At Eating Walbrook, we hear inspiring rags to riches stories on each episode from our guests, but with State Farm, you can begin to write your own success story. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work. In traffic, so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories, change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. How do we sit down and figure out where we want to be? Like, what is a real, is it contingent upon where we are, the salary for the job we have? Should we be planning for the life we want? How do we just, how do we sit down and make that budget? That is really a good question. And (laughs) And it, part of the question on, on one side of it is something I can't answer for people and part of it I can. So the part mm-hmm. I can't answer for and the part I don't think we talk enough about is like, what do I actually want my life to look like? What do I want my money to afford me? Right. And we don't really 
spend a lot of time really, really thinking about that, right? So for example, I like to always use a five-year timeline just, just for the sake of conceptualizing goals that are further than a month or two away or even a year away, but not so far that like, oh, they're so distant, I can't even like factor them into my financial plan. So I find that five years tends to be a nice intermediary benchmark when we're talking about, okay, how do I kind of conceptualize mm-hmm. what I want my life to look like and what do I need to do in my financial life today to make that happen? So for example, if you're, let's say you're in your early 30s and um, you're single Like, do you want to start a family? Even if you're not dating anybody right now, like if you want to start a family and you're in your early thirties, you should be saving for that right now, Mm, if that is possible. And that's what a longer than one year timeline forces you to do. It forces you to factor those bigger visions for your life into your plan today. And, you know, for me, like, I honestly, I'm 34. I still don't know if I want to have kids, right? Uh-huh. So I'm like, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what I want. Right, 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 right. I do know that I care about certain feelings. I do know I care about f- flexibility, freedom, and security. And so for me, how that manifests financially is knowing I have a fully funded emergency fund. What do you recommend that that amount be? <laughs> so it, it, the emergency fund benchmark used to be three to six months worth of your living expenses. Okay. I am now revising that post-2020. So my husband works on Broadway. And he's a stagehand. And so he lost his job on March 12th, 2020. And we just heard today, he works on the Tina Turner musical. And we just heard today that, you know, they're reopening in not, not for another like five or six months from now. So that's going to be over eight. Months. Wow, a year and a half. Goodness. I'm so sorry to hear that too. And uh, um, the unfortunate reality of where we are is so many people can relate. Exactly. Right. And it's just, and I also think, you know, we can look at the last year, year and a half as, as an exceptional circumstance. And in some sure. ways it is, but I think we also have to Reforecast as we're thinking toward the future in that like we are living in a little bit of a different financial world than our parents did. You even alluded to this before in your introduction, right? Like Mm -hmm. the advice that, that parents may have followed or grandparents may have followed may not apply in a world in which there's a lot more instability. Jobs are being automated. There's a pandemic. There's climate change, right? So we have to take all of these moving factors into account. And that's why I say the emergency fund for me, I'm revising from three to six months as a, Mm -hmm. as a goal. I know that's a lot of money to save up in a savings account, but again, as a goal, uh, I'm revising that to six to 12 months worth of living mm-hmm. expenses. 12 mm-hmm. months worth of living expenses is a lot of money. I live in Manhattan. So Ooh. that's, that's oh, a lot. That's all the money. I used to live in Manhattan and I was like, uh-uh, and I got to get to LA because it's crazy. Uh, well, I mean. <laughs> LA is not much better to be clear, but New York is more expensive. Right. And I'm not, and honestly, like as much as I know about money, I'm not at 12 months worth of living expenses mm-hmm. in a savings account just just on the side, right? That's, a, mm-hmm. that's an enormous mm-hmm. goal. I appreciate that transparency though, right? Like to, to encourage people that it's not easy, it's a, but it's a goal to have. Exactly. And I think that's, that's the key, right? Because sometimes we throw out these numbers like, oh, 
you know, by the time you're this age, you should have this much. And I think it's helpful to have targets, but I also think what I have found, especially, you know, I've been, I've been doing this podcast where I've been talking to people about their money. The number one thing that is keeping people from engaging with their finances and having a better financial future is shame. Mm. And so I am very, very wary of giving blanket advice and then not giving some room for people to be like, oh my gosh, like, I don't want people to feel like I'm a failure because I'm not at that point. Mm-hmm. And the fact is like, we are in a different financial landscape between student loan debt, between the cost of housing, between the cost of childcare, between the cost of healthcare. I mean, these are, these costs are unprecedented. They didn't used yeah. to be this way. So if you are struggling, if you are struggling to save one month's worth of living expenses, there's a reason for that. Mm-hmm. So, and you, when you say there's a reason for that, you're saying the reason isn't just isn't you specific. It's extend some grace to yourself because it's the climate we're in. That's exactly what I'm saying, right? Like people take it on. They're, they're saying the reason is me. It's because I'm not disciplined enough, or I'm not smart enough, or I'm not good at math, or I'm not good at money. That is not true. Mm-hmm. Most people I speak to are perfectly capable, and they are trying hard. They are mm-hmm. not lazy at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a very difficult landscape. And I think you have to give yourself some love and grace. Yeah. Do you believe that uh, we should pay ourselves first? You you know, you always hear that. Pay yourself first. Put this, the, put the money in the savings account and then pay your bills. Um, what is your recommendation uh, for folks to start saving? Even if, you know, money's tight. If you're living paycheck to paycheck. Look, I lived paycheck to paycheck for years. I There were times when I was like, mm, the lights might be on when I get back, but they also might not be. Like I struggled for a, for a long time in the early um, years of my career, so I understand that. And so anyone coming to me and being like, "But just don't forget to save," and I'm like, "Excuse me, I'm trying to eat tonight. I am trying to actually eat dinner." So, what do you recommend, um, and how how do we do that? So, yes, in theory, always pay yourself first. But mm-hmm. if you need food, if you need light, if you need mm-hmm. things that are part of your health, safety, or survival, Yeah, you must do that first. Okay. You said health, safety, and survival always come first. Exactly. And I think this is an example of, 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 I've already alluded to, like, I think a lot of the traditional financial advice needs updating for Mm -hmm. like just the realities of our world. And that is a really good example. I, I think like, yeah, if I, if I can't pay my rent, Then I am not in a position to do anything else. Mm -hmm. Work, take care of kids, take care of family, like anything else. Mm -hmm. So it's a non starter to talk about doing something else with my money. Right. 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 So I think we need to, again, acknowledge like, you know, security, safety, that's first. Right. Then savings. Yes. It it doesn't mean it's not a priority, right? Like it doesn't mean that savings comes after, you know, plane tickets and all these other (laughs) things. (laughs) Turn up, turn up. Right. But like, come on. A lot of people, especially after the last year, a lot of people are struggling. One thing I will say as an exception is uh, I speak to a lot of parents and 
they they have so much guilt about what they can't give their kids. Mm -hmm. But I think this you have to apply the same rules to your children. If you can meet their safety and security needs like food, housing, insurance, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. then you got to take care of you. You have to put your oxygen mask on first. I know you want to send your kids to college, but they can borrow money to go to college. You cannot borrow money to fund the rest of your life. Ooh, wait, hold on, Stephanie. With a word, you are preaching right now. And I love that because what I really aim to do with Hot Happy Mess and, and with this uh, really lifestyle movement is put yourself first. You are the VIP of your own life and we can't put off our living for tomorrow. And it becomes so easy, particularly when parenthood comes into the picture. And I know that because I'm watching my best friends go through those journeys. I can't wait to go through that journey. I know when my parents sacrificed for me and, you know, I've said this to, to my mom and dad, particularly my dad, many times it's like the biggest gift you could give me. I don't want anything. I don't need the wire transfer. I don't, whatever is living your life. I want to see you treat yourself, indulge when you have a few extra dollars um, on yourself, the way that you so put me and my brothers first. And of course, you know, parents are like, yeah, okay, whatever. What do you, what do you want for Christmas? But um, I love hearing you say that and really encouraging people, giving them permission to put themselves first after their kids' essential needs are met. Absolutely. It's just, it's so critical. And I understand why this is difficult. Everybody wants to do right by their children. Everyone wants their children to succeed more. But I also think if they're struggling with prioritizing themselves first, um, a couple things to keep in mind. You as a parent, you are the financial security of your full family. So your your children's financial security is your financial security. So if you are not okay, they are not going to be okay. And if you are funding their college before you're funding your emergency savings, mm -hmm. then you are not okay and thus they are not okay. The mm -hmm. second piece is think about the trade-off. If you sacrifice now to to save for them to go to school or to, you know, put gifts on credit cards or whatever it is so that mm -hmm. they can have, you know, above and beyond. And of course we all want to give children that, mm -hmm. but if you do that now, the burden comes back, the burden mm -hmm. falls on them when you are older and they yeah. then have the financial responsibility and burden of taking care of you. Yeah. And that is a much, much bigger burden than them not getting the trips or the, the extracurriculars or the, whatever it is now. Right, right. Um, I want to touch on a few things really quickly. There's so much I want to talk to you about. We're going to deep dive on, on a lot of these topics in individual episodes. Um, but, you know, before we sort of get into credit and, and um, you know, debt and is there good debt, bad debt, just really quickly to wrap up the savings portion. Um, I come from the old school of cash under the mattress, right? And I mean that figuratively speaking. And I grew out of that very quickly because I was like, this cash under the mattress is not paying for much. And the more I learned, and really the, the more I deep dive into my finances and you consider inflation and the state of our economy, you know, I was just going back and forth with my, with my mom in the group chat the other day about this, because it's like $5,000 under the mattress today. Yeah. You've still got that 5,000. And I understand that old school mentality of keep it where you can see it. But five years from now, when you want to use that 5,000, 
it's going to get you less than it would have gotten you had you just used it five years ago. And I think that's a tough concept for people to wrap their minds around initially sometimes because it was tough for me too. Um, what do you think about how to save if we have extra money? Do we just hide it and, and pull it out when it's time to spend? Do we uh, buy stocks, bonds? Like, What are our options and what do you suggest? Yeah, so in the last year, investing has gotten a lot of press coverage. Mm -hmm. And I think in some ways it's great. Like we're talking about the stock market a lot more than I think people typically talk about it. Unfortunately, we're not talking about it in a way that is accessible to most people and it feels like a a safe bet. Mm -hmm. The way we're talking about it, it feels like gambling. But and, and that's one of the mis- biggest misconceptions around investing. And I think it's really unfortunate because investing is one of the most powerful things you can do for your money. And it is like the thing that like, it's a way of keeping up and outpacing inflation in a way that like no savings account can match, right. not even just cash under the mattress. I mean, like even your brick and mortar bank savings. Yeah. Account is- well, cause those interest rates are so disrespectful. I'm like, well, you're giving me what percentage on this money sitting here for a year. Exactly. Right. So I mean, even, even a high yield savings account, which is actually mm-hmm. one of the, the number one things people can do for a quick win is move mm-hmm. their money from a brick and mortar savings account to mm-hmm. a high yield savings account, typically online only. But Okay. Is that easy to do? Is that like an income qualification, a credit thing? or Very anything? easy to do. Typically no minimum required to open. I, I would say if we're talking about barriers, barrier being like you must have either a smartphone or a computer where you have internet access. So, so internet banking, that's where you really start to access a lot better rates. That's where you're going to get checking accounts that don't charge maintenance fees. That's Mm -hmm. where you're going to get access to a debit card where all of your ATMs are going to be reimbursed. Your ATM fees are going to be reimbursed. Oh, nice. Oh, I need to do that. Yeah. Very quick and easy win for, for maximizing your money is switching to, or at least having a checking account at an online only bank and a savings account at an online mm-hmm. only bank because that's going to maximize your interest rates. But even there, especially now, uh, interest rates were o- over 1%, almost 2% a couple of years ago, but now they are 0.5% rate of inflation historically, 2 to 3%. So mm-hmm. to your point, your money is losing value if it's sitting in a savings account. Now, mm-hmm. for things like an emergency fund we were talking about or a short-term goal where you, you know you're going to want that money relatively accessible. You don't want it so accessible that it's in your checking account and goes away as soon as you swipe your debit card. But you want it accessible enough that if your car breaks down or if your roof caves in, that you can access that money in a day or two. So that's mm-hmm. what that money is for, that that savings account money. for Or for a goal that is one, two, three, four, five years out, let's say it's a wedding or a fertility treatment or a house, that mm-hmm. money, I also think, okay, a savings account. But if we're talking more 5, 10, 20, 30, 40 plus year timeline, we're talking about retirement, uh, we're talking about just like big long-term goals, that is money you really want to think about investing. And mm-hmm. I don't mean putting it in one stock. I don't mean GameStop. I don't mean <laughs> even a, even a reputable company like an Apple or a Google. I would never, ever, ever say put all of your money in one place. Mm-hmm. I would say what you want to do is start looking at, uh, I mean, 
first of all, one of your best vehicles is, is a retirement savings fund if you have that through work. Or if mm-hmm. you don't have it through work, you can set up your own. Um, and How then, do you, where do you go for that to set up your own? Yeah. So just like if you worked at a job and they had a 401k and it was offered through a company like Fidelity or Vanguard or Charles right. Schwab, we've all seen the ads, right? Yeah. Yeah. You can set up the same thing at those places. Oh. So, okay. So you can just like go into Fidelity and be like, I want an right. account. Correct. So what you would do is if you're, again, looking for a retirement account specifically, uh, and the reason retirement accounts are special is because they have great tax advantages, meaning you can, with a 401k, for example, um, what you do is you get a tax break on the front end. So you can reduce your taxable income for the year by the amount that you've contributed to the 401k. And then on Another popular account that people set up is a Roth IRA, and this is something you can do whether or not you have an employer 401k account or not. Like, I I never had a 401k, so Mm -hmm. I've always had to do it on my own. So the first account I set up was at, you know, at a Vanguard, and I was like, open up Roth IRA. Mm-hmm. And the great news is you type that in, you will get a million and one resources walking you through step by and step. What exactly is it? Because I have a Roth IRA and I still couldn't honestly totally tell you what the difference is uh, for the longest. Um, I remember back in the day when I was in my early 20s, I was still like in Dayton, Ohio, working for the local news station. And this person was like, you should get a Roth IRA. There are even more tax incentives than, you know, a traditional 401k. And so I just did it because I just trusted that person. What is a Roth IRA? IRA. Okay. So the way it differs from the 401k is where you get the tax benefit. So I know we're getting like a little technical here and a little jargony, but basically the the difference between the two accounts is they both have amazing tax benefits, but on the 401k, it's on the front end. It's when you contribute with the Roth IRA. It's when you withdraw the money. So you contribute to the Roth IRA with your after-tax dollars. So, you know, I, I don't, I don't get any benefit really from contributing to the Roth IRA now from a tax perspective. But when I withdraw that money when I'm 60 or 65, whatever, mm-hmm. I pay no taxes on mm. any of the gains in that account. Because you paid up front. Right. And, and on the gains. Ooh, so think of, think no of this. taxes like, on the gains. Let's is, go. I've only been investing. I, you know, I'm 34. So I've been investing in a Roth IRA for 10 years. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have tens of thousands of wow. dollars in gains. Think yeah. tax free. And it just think gets about to go how in your much pocket. you pay yeah. in taxes typically right. on tens of thousands of dollars. And I'm not going to retire. Yeah. God only knows when I'm going to retire. Right. <laughs> but, but 30, 40 years, I mean, that could be hundreds of thousands of dollars in tax free. Mm-hmm free earnings. Mm. So that is what is so special about retirement accounts. The big Mm. caveat about saving in retirement accounts is that you're not supposed to touch them until you're, I I, I believe right now the age is until you're older than 59 and a half. And that's when you can start taking distributions. Mm -hmm. But the thing is like, I have to, I I can tell you this after telling you about, um, you know, my husband, being out of work for the last 18 months. And mm-hmm. a lot of my work dried up at the start of the pandemic too, is like, we were very asset rich, meaning like our retirement accounts in the last year were gangbusters. Like the stock mm-hmm. market, this pandemic did not affect the stock market. This <laughs> pandemic, like the stock market has been on fire. Yeah. But, like, it's been bizarre. <laughs> right. But the ca- our cash flow was, was incredibly affected because I'm a small business owner and my husband works in the arts. Mm-hmm. And so it was like, oh my gosh, like 
in, on paper, our net worth was great, but our cash flow was really tight during yeah. the pandemic. And so that's the big thing with those retirement accounts, because I might have all this money on paper, but if I can't touch it or I can't touch it without penalty, mm-hmm. um, granted there were some exceptions during the pandemic, uh, in some of the, some of the laws that were passed, but if I, have, mm-hmm. I typically can't touch it without penalty, mm-hmm. then I also need to make sure that I do have that short-term savings in that liquid accessible savings account that I do have enough money in checking and I'm saving for the goals I want to reach before retirement, not in those retirement accounts. So I know this is all very long winded and like a little bit complex, but I think it's important that we just kind of lay out the landscape for all of these different buckets of our lives. There's the here and now there's the emergencies. There's like the next five years. And then there's like 10, 20, 30 plus years away. And those all require different tactics. Yeah. Yeah. I want to give out some questions that our listeners gave for this very episode, but just really quickly before we dive into those credit debt, generally speaking, just the one-on-one of it all. Um, how do you, how do we build it? What is good versus bad credit? What is it an ideal score? And then also debt, can it ever be good? Is it ever a good thing? So, uh, I'm cautious of the way we've categorized good debt and bad debt. Mm. Um, I think it's hard, right? Because like traditionally speaking, when we talk about good debt, we're talking about a debt that ultimately enables you to build your assets in the long term. So for example, you bought a home. So that home has a lot of value and your mortgage is just like, it's it's a debt, but it's a way for you to build up your assets on the, it's coming back to the net worth, right? This is why we talk more net worth than just budget, right? Because on the, mm-hmm. on the big picture whole, yeah, like if I was look, if I was looking at your mortgage in isolation without seeing on the other side of it, oh, well on the other side, there's this house with all of this value and I'm building equity and maybe that house a- appreciates in value over time. Well, like mm-hmm. then yeah, of course that debt is going to be completely worthwhile Yeah, where I think this is getting a, I, I, I'm cautioning everybody a little bit is we shouldn't always assume that that's how it works. Just mm-hmm. because a house has historically been an, a vehicle for building wealth doesn't mean for you, this house, this property in this moment is going to be a vehicle for wealth. And so that's how you had, you know, I'm not saying for you, you, sorry. Mm-hmm. I'm mm-hmm. saying, for, All good. I'm saying for the listener, right? The so people, that's how we get everybody. To, the, to the housing <laughs> crisis, right? Yeah. That, that's when we, I, I I'll caution everyone to take a second look and be like, well, actually run the numbers to make sure that this is a cost that I can bear on a month to month basis and not. And and even if my house doesn't appreciate, is this something that I can manage? And it's the same with student loan debt, because that's another category that we call about good debt, right? Okay. Because that was just about to ask, do we have to pay our student loans? (laughs) (laughs) Like, or do we have to pay more than the bare minimum? Can we go into the grave with the debt? Like what happens, Stephanie? What are the rules? It's so hard. Student loans are (laughs) such a burden. Um, But that's, but that's kind of like my point, right? Is, is first of all, Coming back to the good debt, bad debt question, um, especially if somebody's thinking about getting their master's or something else, just don't assume that the debt is automatically a good choice because it's financing higher education. Mm-hmm. Run the numbers. What is the starting salary mm-hmm. for somebody getting that master's degree? Oh, Not 10 years from now. 
tell tell me your starting salary. Yeah. Yeah. And that and because there are so many alternatives, right? Like, yeah. and especially if the difference, especially with undergrad, man, this is, this is the myth that drives me nuts because it's the myth my parents put into me, which is like, go to the best school you can get into. And I think yeah. that is toxic. Same. Yeah. Same. Yeah, like, it, the school you go to almost really doesn't. Doesn't matter. It's like, what did you do? What connections did you make? What relationships did you form? My best, one of my best friends, she is, um, she's a vet. And we were talking about this very recently. First of all, I always joke that she has just been in school for the last 13, 70,000 light years um, because we met at Ohio State and then she went to graduate school. She is quite literally a doctor now. So she's got all of these massive student loans and she picked um, veterinary medicine because she thought, okay, this is a doctor still. I love animals. This is great. And everyone only ever told us, get good jobs, go be a doctor, go to the best school that you can and pay it all because you'll get a reward on the back end. But, you know, we were talking about this and it's like, at a certain point, how much debt does it require for you to get on track for that career? And then how many years of that career will just be spent paying back the debt? And if it's more than five, 10, 15 years, maybe we reconsider what, what, what our options are when it comes to either the career path or the debt or the loan or the, the school of choice. Society doesn't necessarily groom its students like that. No one ever schooled me in that way. Not at all. And part of this is like the cost of college really just, and higher education in general just has become disproportionately it's more crazy. high in the last decade, two decades. But yeah, like the whole narrative of the American dream, and we've alluded to this already in the conversation, but so much of that really needs to be reconsidered and, mm -hmm. and just put for the prism of, oh, given me in my circumstance, um, if I want to go into journalism, it, does me shelling out a hundred grand to go to like Columbia journalism school make sense? I'm going to tell y'all right now, don't do it. This is coming from a journalist, especially when anybody with a Wi-Fi connection and a Twitter account is, is a journalist these days. <laughs> exactly. And it's one thing if, you know, if, if you know, you're not going to be on the hook for that, or you don't have to take out student loans for whatever right. reason, you right. know, that's one thing. And mm -hmm. bless, the, bless that for, for, for people who can do that. That's wonderful, but that's not the reality for most people. Mm -hmm. And it, I understand that there is still very much this, this premium around the idea of status and cachet. But I think one of the things we need to do is remember our own experience. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's kind of mystifying to me, especially because I, I, you know, I'm a millennial and I have a lot of friends who have kids and yet like, and so everybody went through this experience and they had their own reckoning around like, wow, like that brand name school really wasn't worth an extra twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000. And yet when it comes to thinking about where their kids are going to go to school or, or thinking about their next steps in terms of like higher education, there still seems to be this, this pull into mm -hmm. that status. And I think we have to really, really be cognizant about how much of our lives and our money decisions and everything is really just 
pulled and shaped by our emotions and our our histories and mm-hmm. not just numbers on the page. Because if we mm-hmm. were really looking at numbers on the page, we would make vastly different decisions. Yeah. Very different choices. Last question before we uh, wrap up with listener questions. Um, if someone wants to make a budget, if they, you know, we talked a little bit about this at the beginning of, of our conversation as far as tracking everything. What am I spending on? How much is coming in? If you're doing that, you're tracking and you decide you want to budget, just really quickly, um, how do you recommend we divvy up the pie? How much should go to entertainment? How much should go to bills? How much should go to whatever? What do you recommend? Yeah. So again, this is where it's like, oh my gosh, because my cost of living in New York City is going to be totally different from somebody's cost of living Mm -hmm. somewhere else, even from yours in LA, right? Because like, I live in New York City. My rent is really high, but I don't have a car. And like the Mm -hmm. average cost of having a car is $900 a month, right? So Mm -hmm. that changes the proportion of the money that I have to, I have to put toward transportation, right? Like I can walk almost everywhere. I have like almost Mm -hmm. a $0 transportation budget, whereas people are budgeting $500, $1,000. But for me, okay, rent, that might be, that Mm -hmm. might be half of my budget. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm just saying this to give context to the fact that that is really different for everybody, depending on your situation, where you're living, what your goals are. Mm -hmm. That said, if you can, you know, save and invest 20% of a paycheck, that's wonderful. Okay. Do it. But also understand that the word saving, when I say it, that includes anything that contributes to your net worth growth. And so what does that mean? It mean, could mean paying off debt. It mm. could mean uh, an emergency fund savings. It could mean investing. It could mean all three of those things. And I think what's going to be the priority for you is really going to depend on what that composition looks like. Because if you have a credit card debt with 25% interest, that has to be a priority Mm -hmm. in a way Mm -hmm. that like, you know, I'm talking about a savings account earning 1% interest. It's really hard to make an argument for for prioritizing six months worth of living expenses in there when you're carrying around 25% interest rate credit card debt. Mm. Mm-hmm. What do you happen to know? And it's totally fine if you don't. The the general, like an average debt to income ratio, like at what ratio are you kind of falling a- alongside most Americans? Like when should you not be overly concerned? Goodness. Loaded question. <laughs> um. So I, 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 I'm, I'm hesitant to talk about averages mostly because mm-hmm. the average American is in a really bad financial position. Mm-hmm. But what I, so what I would say is like, Take comfort in that, in that you're not alone. And like the system is very difficult to navigate. Mm-hmm. I think that's where mm-hmm. you can take some comfort. But mm-hmm. I would say also, you know, look at what it means for your cash flow. What is your debt costing you on a monthly basis? And like if you're not able to pay more than the minimum, then you are in a paycheck to paycheck cycle. And there there might be some some things you really need to rethink about the rest of your budget so mm-hmm. that you can pay more than the minimum on your debt and make real progress. And I, w- I really mean that for high interest debt. If yeah. you have a student loan that's really low interest rate, like mm-hmm. 4%, 
There's no rush. Well, I would be coasting on that thing for the next 40 years. (laughs) Exactly. There is no rush to pay that off. But when you're talking about debt that is like maybe 6% interest rate or above, that's when, that's when there needs to be a little bit of a fire under the butt, right? Because that's when like you really can't outpace that reliably Mm -hmm. with even invest, even investing as wonderful as it is, it's really hard to beat like a consistent seven to 10% return. So if you have a debt that's 15, 25 more percent, like that's an emergency and you need to do what you can to make that a priority to get it down. State Farm Insurance gets it. Representation alone doesn't equate to authenticity. State Farm understands and wants to help protect our communities by investing in our future, building off the hard work our parents have done before us. We all are looking to create generational wealth so that our families and generations behind us have a better starting point than we did. That begins with financial literacy. State Farm helps fund programs like Project Ready, a National Urban League program committed to the educational achievement of black and brown youth. To date, participants have been awarded over $11 million in scholarships offers as a direct result of contributions from State Farm. At Eating Wallbrook, we hear inspiring rags to riches stories on each episode from our guests, but with State Farm, you can begin to write your own success story. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. AT&T connects an ode to podcast. Connect the alarm, change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze, 10 more minutes to dream. Connect the shower, lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work and traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories, change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. All right, to wrap up, I want to throw out a few listener questions. Um, not rapid fire, like, but just, you know, kind of like top of your head, what you think would be like the most ideal way to approach each of these situations. So first up, our listener Rita says, I need some advice on how to handle finances as a couple. A little backstory. I'm the breadwinner, which I think makes my husband a little uncomfortable, but I'm willing to chip more, chip in more on the bills, which I've been doing. I've recently separated our income because I'm a saver and my husband is an overspender and it was stifling our cash flow, having us both have access to all the money, not to mention stressing me out. But now my husband is failing at saving and managing money. On the other hand, all of our bills are paid. I'm flourishing with my savings and fun money. My husband, not so much. Should I have a joint account with him again? Any advice? Oh, and we also have a baby in this hot, happy mess. And it gets tricky when it comes to who should pay for what with her. First of all, Rita, shout out to you and the hot, happy mess nod. Love you, girl. Uh, Second of all, 
Stephanie, help. Yes. Okay. So super important thing to know about money and relationships. Money is complicated. Relationships are complicated. It is not surprising that this is hard to navigate. So first thing out of the way, like, yes, it's difficult. It's messy. It's messy for almost everybody. I do not, again, as usual, believe that there is one right way to manage your money as a couple. What I do think is important for every couple to have are rules, boundaries, and expectations. Mm -hmm. So if you want to combine all your money, that's fine. That's an expectation. If you want to keep all your money separate, fine. That's an expectation. My husband and I do a hybrid of accounts, right? So some people go all in on everything. Some people do all separate. We do a combination of the two, but it's really built around the same premise of having a shared expectation. And for us, it's a shared expectation that we will each contribute a certain amount to our shared checking account each month. Now it's mm-hmm. changed during the pandemic because we revisit these things because our lives change and thus our expectations change. Mm-hmm. But before it was like we each put in the same amount to the checking account. Our shared bills come from there. Our shared savings go from there. It's kind of like the inbox of all of our shared money. And mm-hmm. then we have the rest of our money to spend how we like. Some people do the reverse thing where they combine all the money and then they have an allowance for each person. They're like, okay, you know, 500 bucks a month that we each take from the from the joint pot and that's money we spend however we like. Mm-hmm. It's not that there's a right way or a wrong way. What's right is that you and your partner talk about what is our expectation of what we're each contributing mm-hmm. and what we're each taking and what our roles and responsibilities are within the relationship. And then in terms of rules and boundaries, you have to set those. So mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, there's this term called financial infidelity and personal finance. And it's this idea of like a secret credit card or a secret debt. And, you know, on its surface, that sounds really nefarious and really bad, right? Like financial infidelity. Oh my Mm -hmm. gosh. Right. (laughs) The thing is, it's really hard to be upset with some, with somebody about like a credit card they might have that you think about as a secret. If you've never set the expectation to begin with that we talk about all of our money Mm -hmm. all of the time. Time, mm-hmm. Right. So you have to get on the same page and you have to set rules and a rule might be like if you're opening an extra line of credit and we're married. I have to know about it because that influences me, right? And if you're going to take on a debt or if you're going to to apply for a loan, like this needs to be a discussion Mm -hmm. before you go ahead and do that. Is there a certain amount of money at which we will not spend without talking to each other first? Mm -hmm. It can be $100. It can be $500. But that's a rule or a boundary Mm -hmm. that we don't cross without consulting with one another first. So that's what I think for couples, that's the, those are the shared things you really need to have Mm -hmm. more so than like, this is the only right way to like set up your accounts or, or manage like differences and who earns what, right? It's more about, okay, well, if we do earn different amounts of money, or if you are a spender and I am a saver, taking all of that into consideration, what do I expect from you? What do you expect from me? And what are the rules and parameters and boundaries we're going to set around this relationship when it comes to money? Okay. Got it. And for Rita with them and paying for the baby, do you recommend that that just comes out of a joint account? Like, are there rules to that? Yeah. So, I mean, a baby is obviously a joint expense, Um, but you know, one of the, one of the things I do is like, I 
I pull our joint savings from our joint checking account, right? Mm -hmm. So in addition to the joint checking account, I think about of it again as an inbox. It's like where everything comes in. But from the inbox, I have folders. Mm -hmm. And my folders are, okay, well, it might be uh, if when I first opened a joint checking account with, with he was then my fiance, the first folder was our wedding. Mm. So from the joint checking account, that's where, okay, the rent came out and the groceries came out, but then also out went the money that's went out every month to save for the wedding and then pay all the vendor bills from there. Mm -hmm. But then thinking more broadly, okay, if we're saving for a vacation, if we're saving for uh, a home, if we're saving for a baby, if we're managing those expenses or those savings goals, that is also then coming, in our case, from the joint checking account. But it can, mm -hmm. again, be whatever system you choose. It just has to work for you. Okay. And you have to update it, right? Yeah. Like life changes every five seconds these days. Yep, it ebbs <laughs> so and it flows. You got to have money dates. You got to like sit down every Ooh. month and be like, okay, where are we at? What's working? I like What's that. not working? Yeah. Right. We talk about so much with our partner. You yeah. know, there, there's less taboo talking about sex than there is talking about money. Yeah. So like, let's talk about these things that really shape our lives in a way that like very little else does that have as much of an influence about on what we can afford or can't afford or the yeah. less we can build in our money. So let's dedicate some time to it. You know what? I love that, Rita. Set you a money date, girl. Just sit down with the hubby and sort it out. Additionally, fear not, we are going to have an entire episode soon dedicated to financial compatibility for couples. This is very important, particularly when one is a spender and one is a saver. Spoiler alert, I'm not the saver. I wasn't the saver, okay? I've changed my ways. I'm reformed. I'm definitely much better now, but I wasn't to start. And those were lessons learned and we're going to talk about them. Um, our next two listener questions come from Timberly. First, best things to do when planning to buy a home and maybe just your top tip because we're going to have a full episode on that. All right. Okay. And then secondly, custodial or 529, if we already have money for our kids college, I don't even honestly know what 529 means. So if you could break that down, mm. that'd be great. Okay. So when we're talking about saving up to buy a home, the biggest thing is just right. The epic down payment. Oh. <laughs> Oh my gosh. That is a big <laughs> chunk of money, especially if you're trying to save 20%, yeah. which is where you get past private mortgage insurance, which is it's a threshold a lot of people are trying to reach. Yeah. That said, you can buy a home by putting less down, especially if you're a first-time home buyer. And so what I would encourage people to do is think hyper-local. And this is actually true with a lot of things like paying for college or, or during the pandemic, trying to find resources, is like things that are available on a national level are, are their own thing that we all generally know and talk about. But, but there are so many more resources that are available mm -hmm. if you're a first-time home buyer or if you were um, dealing with um, uh, income loss during the pandemic or if you um, are, are trying to get a scholarship for college that are available in your location. And why that's so important is by reducing the footprint of, mm -hmm. uh, of, of the area you're looking within, you have so much less competition that you are, mm -hmm. that you are yeah. dealing with, right? Like I remember when I was applying at college scholarships and I was like applying for like I don't know, the Coca-Cola or McDonald's scholarship. And I'm like, what are the chances I'm going to get this? None. <laughs> but I then found a list of hyper-local in my town scholarships yeah. and I got like five or six. 
politics. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's kind of the way I think about a lot of stuff when it comes to thinking about programs, resources, things that I can tap into is like, what are all of the other things that might apply to me and not to everybody else? Mm -hmm. Because that is a way to, to, to gain a leg up. And that might not just be your location. It might be your profession. Mm -hmm. It, it, it might be like, I'm Ukrainian. So like maybe like through the Ukrainian federal credit union, I can get some programs. Yeah. Maybe a few thousand bucks with your name on it. Exactly. So like, let's think about all of our affinities and and associations because that's just a way to tap in again to, to programs that, that might have cash flow that other people just don't even know about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And that's true for homeownership too. First time homebuyers, especially there's a lot of programs. Um, So, so saving the down payment and then getting the education, tapping into the resources. I love that. Saving for college. That's the other one. Yes. You know, custodial versus 529. Like, to be honest, I can't speak to the intricacies of each one. And I think, I think, um, but what I would say about savings accounts, investment accounts, vehicles in general for, for many, many different goals is so many people get hung up on the decision between Okay, is is it this one or this one? Is it is it Roth IRA or four hundred one k? They get so caught up in that decision that they don't get caught up in the habit, and it mm-hmm. keeps them from starting the habit. And so I always say, start the habit, start the habit of saving for college, start the habit of investing, start the habit of saving for an emergency fund, and then you can always optimize as you learn more. Mm-hmm. But most of us, we get caught up in analysis paralysis and we get so caught up in worrying we're going to make the wrong decision that we make no decision at all. Mm -hmm. And that is the worst decision we can make. Good stuff. Good stuff. Okay. So I want to combine these next two questions because they're kind of both about credit fluctuation. Catherine asks, why does my credit score randomly dip with absolutely no change in behavior? And then Paige says, my husband got a bonus. We use the money to pay off our car and our credit card debt. I expected our credit score to rise, but it actually dropped several points for a while. I also noticed that seems to happen whenever I pay off a huge chunk of my student loan debt. Why does it do that? Okay, so more than anything, because I know you can't speak specifically to what, you know, there might be other things you don't really know what's going on in someone's report, but the fluctuation of credit scores, generally speaking, how does that work? So I think one of the biggest factors about credit scores that most people don't realize is a huge factor is called is called your credit utilization. Ooh, and that is how yes. much of your credit are you using at any given time? So we know on-time payments are the most important thing, of course. And generally speaking, we know like our length of credit history is kind of important. We know having different kinds of credit helps improve the credit score. But right after on-time payments, your credit utilization is the biggest, generally, different scoring models have different weights, but your credit utilization is one of the top, top Mm -hmm. things that influences your credit score. So what does Mm -hmm. that mean? If you have a, let's say you you just got your first credit card and they only gave you a thousand dollar credit limit. Mm -hmm. If your balance is $300, your credit utilization is 30%. Mm, that's um, no bueno. <laughs> right? So you, so people don't think about this when they think about, well, what's going on with my credit? Well, at any given time when your credit is, score is being pulled, your credit utilization could be uh, maybe you just charged, a, a, like, I don't know, a car 
Mm-hmm. I, I don't think people charge cars on their credit cards, but like, let's say something huge. <laughs> yeah. How about a restoration hardware cloud couch for $16,000? Exactly. Like if you have a $20,000 credit limit and you had, you just bought a $16,000 couch. And then again, across all of your credit cards and, and, and let's say your other cards were already maxed out. Like your credit utilization is going to be very high. And even mm-hmm. if you paid off that credit card by before the payment date, mm-hmm. if your credit score was pulled when your utilization was high, then yeah, your credit is going is going to see a dip. So you know, we're talking about, oh, I paid off this credit card. Why am I seeing this dip? It's like you just don't know the the actual date mm-hmm. that they took they they measured it. Right. So generally speaking, as a rule, it's great to keep your credit utilization below thirty percent if possible. So I gave the example mm-hmm. of three hundred dollars on a thousand dollar credit limit, but again, that's across all your cards. And across and across all your balances, yeah. so you want to keeping be keeping the full picture in mind. And then uh, the other piece of this to consider with um, with credit scores is as long as you're staying in the like in the seven hundred high seven hundreds or above, mm-hmm. please do not stress out about the impact to your credit. Mm-hmm. Like if. Uh, unless you're dipping into a, a different category of, yeah. of credit. So, yeah. so if you're, if you're on the edge of excellent credit to good credit, mm-hmm. that's something you can maybe stress out about. What's good? Like what's the minimum to be good? So, so, so this, there's this like gray range between seven, seven twenty, seven forty, and seven sixty. Mm-hmm. And generally speaking, like, 740 or above, 760 and above, that's excellent credit. That's when you're going to qualify for the best terms on the best interest rates, you, mm-hmm. you know, all the things. That said, like, remember credit is just a measure for for how likely you are to really be approved for a loan. It's a measure of how well you borrow money. Mm-hmm. So if you are not applying for a mortgage tomorrow, or if, if you're not trying to get a car loan tomorrow, or, you know, qualify for an apartment tomorrow, it's okay. It's yeah. okay if there's a dip. And it's okay if you go from 800 to 780, right? Yeah. Like, please do, do not stress out about that. And do not let a do not let like a 10 point dip in your credit score mm-hmm. deter you from paying off a credit card. Yeah. That is not like a zero debt is way more of a goal than a high credit score. A high yeah. credit score is important. I'm not going to say it's not, mm-hmm. but like, don't let the tail wag the dog. That's the thing, right? right it's like right. your credit is just not nearly as important in the moment for your financial health mm-hmm. as, as what a high, especially high interest credit yeah. card debt is costing you. Okay. Last question. Mary 23 Lynn asks, what's the best way to tackle high debt after divorce? Are there tactics that are divorce specific or not so much? Yeah, we just did a whole episode on divorce on Uh on Money Confidential. Uh And I think the biggest thing after divorce that makes it unique, you know, when it comes to the numbers on the page, yeah, it's similar, right? It's, Uh it's, you gotta do the net worth assessment. You gotta see what do I own? What do I owe? What's my, what's my new cash flow now that I'm, you know, paying for life on my own, you know, before there was a lot in my life that I, that I automatically had just through joint partnership. But, you know, 
well, did he get the hammer or did right. I, or, or did, yeah. you know, did she get the hammer or did I, you know? So, so there is some of that cash flow immediate thing of like, eh, okay, paying for my divorce lawyer, divorce lawyer, all those fees. But generally speaking, at the end of the day, it's like taking that full net worth assessment mm-hmm. and then redoing your cash flow now as a single person based mm-hmm. on your new circumstances. But I think the biggest piece around divorce debt specifically and divorce finances in general is the emotional side of it. Mm-hmm. You have to give yourself, again, I've said this before, grace, grace, but especially in a moment like divorce, right? Divorce or any moment of, of financial hardship in the last year, we've all experienced a lot of loss, job loss, family loss, health loss. Um, in those moments, it's okay for some balls to drop. Mm-hmm. Ideally, yes, we're not going to miss our bills. Ideally, yes, we do everything on time. We're fully optimized, but we're human. And so I think it's really important that we give space for those emotional experiences, for the grief, for the pain. And if a a financial ball drops during that time, that's okay. We can pick it back up when we're more able. What's not okay is beating ourselves up about the fact that that happened Mm -hmm. because that just reinforces the cycle of shame, embarrassment, and that makes us less able to engage with our finances in the future. So I think maybe that is my biggest message. Stephanie, honestly, I love that you infuse finance with so much compassion. You know, it's such an emotional thing. Like you've said yourself, and I totally agree. Like money is not easy to talk about. And there's a lot of shame and stigma that surrounds it. And it's something that drives our everyday life. We have to be able to talk about this. Not more than a few hours goes by before we're reaching for our wallet or our purse or a few bucks or whatever it is. And don't get me started on Amazon again. So it's awesome to hear you, you know, sort of acknowledging the emotional aspect by using words like grace and myself using words like compassion, which is what I feel coming from you when it comes to how you approach this. If people want to keep up with you, follow you, if they want to utilize your services, uh, what all do you offer and where can they find you? Yes. So I love having these conversations. And first of all, I want to thank you for having them here. I think we should be having them everywhere. Uh, but talking about money more generally is something that you know I build my life around. And I do that right now at the mm-hmm. Money Confidential podcast at for Real Simple Magazine. And we talk to listeners every week about their real money stories, real money struggles, and practical solutions for working through them. And then, you know, I write about power, ambition, and the intersection of of specifically money and gender more broadly at stephanieoconnell.com and on social media. So you can find me anywhere. And where are you on social media? What's the at? At Stephanie O'Connell. But if you Google me, you will find me. Oh, okay. (laughs) Just run her name through Google real quick. Just like you. (laughs) (laughs) Stephanie, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom, your expertise. Uh, You clearly know your stuff, and I'm really excited to dive into this series. So I appreciate you being one of the first to, to help kick it off. Thank you. Thank you for talking about this. Money is definitely a mess, but it's a good thing. Happy. Thank you again so much to Stephanie. Again, I just really loved how she took sort of the cold and personal nature of personal finance and just has totally flipped it into something that is accessible for the everyday person. So I hope you have some practical takeaways from that. For this week's party trick, download the Secret to Money app. 
boom, boom, baby. That's what it is. The Secret to Money is an app that is designed to change the way you think about money and to radically change the circumstances of money in your life. It's a personal development program of daily activities featuring six powerful practices that will help you develop a wealth mindset. We're talking about wealth, y'all, okay? Desires, purchases, manifested money, daily inspirations, affirmations, and giving. So go ahead, check out the app. Let me know how you like it. Slide in the DMs at Zuri Hall or at Hot Happy Mess. And remember, y'all, you can go to hothappymess.com for all of the show notes, resources, and links, and info on the experts. And join us over on Facebook where we will be hosting a huge summer giveaway. Huge, massive, very big, and very soon. We'll be announcing it first to our Facebook insiders. So go to Facebook, search for Hot Happy Mess, answer the questions, and let's get the conversation started, y'all. Get in while the getting's good. We got some giveaways and you are going to love them. Don't forget, leave a quick review if you're a real one. Helps us out. Love you. I'll see you next Monday. In the meantime, let's keep the party going. Follow me on Instagram at Zuri Hall and at Hot Happy Mess. I'll see y'all next week. Bye. Bye. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.